Can I get you to turn please with me to back to Acts chapter Acts chapter 9 on page 1105 The outline of the sermon is on the sheet that you received as you came in in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, that you will speak to us by your spirit. Uh, Please work in each of our hearts, uh, giving us faith in the Lord Jesus and uh, a desire to love him and trust him. Uh, We pray that uh, as we see what's happened with Saul, uh, we would be encouraged and built up uh, in, in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther was a monk and a theological lecturer in the 16th century in Germany. He lived a pretty upright life, and yet he knew he was a sinner before God. And so he had an extremely disturbed conscience. He hated the term, the righteousness of God which he found in Romans 1, because he had been taught that the righteousness of God there was the justice because of which God punished unrighteous sinners. He hated God's righteousness and struggled with his own conscience. And yet as he grappled with the words in Paul's letter to the Romans, he came to realize a a radical thing. This is what he writes. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. But I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness in which the merciful God justifieth us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. A totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thus, that place in Paul was for me, truly, the gate to paradise. John Wesley was an Anglican minister. He had been a missionary to America, sent to convert the natives and improve the religious life of the colonialists. But he never had assurance of salvation himself. And then he describes his own conversion experience. In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading the Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation 
And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It's a great occasion, isn't it? When a man, woman or child becomes a true Christian. Jesus said the angels in heaven throw a party when one sinner repents. Salvation of one's soul is a cause of, of great celebration. And today we are looking at one of those conversions. Well, the conversion we're looking at is, is, as far as the history of the church is concerned, one of huge significance. Because the conversion of soul sets the scene for a new stage in God's mission to see the gospel go out into all the world. Remember at the beginning of the book of Acts? Jesus said to his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is how God's word spreads in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and beyond. First seven chapters of Acts, gospel spreading in Jerusalem. Ends in chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen. And then in the beginning of chapter 8, the persecution breaks out, and all the Christians except the apostles are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And we see the spread of the gospel there. But in chapter 9, the stage is being set for the spread of the gospel throughout the world. And the key event in this was going to be the conversion of Saul, the bitter persecutor of the Christian faith. Now Saul was first mentioned back in chapter 7, verse 58, where those who stoned Stephen left their clothing at his feet. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approved of Stephen's death. And in chapter 8, verse 3, he's fully involved in the persecution that scatters Christians. He, he's ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then we don't hear about him for the rest of chapter 8. But we're following, because we're following what God is doing through Philip. But while the gospel was going out to Samaritans and people like the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul was back in Jerusalem looking for Christians to arrest them. And again we meet him here at the beginning of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The followers of the way, as Christianity was then called, were refugees from Jerusalem. They'd spread and run off. And under the Romans, the high priest had right of extradition over people from his area who were fleeing from justice. And so Saul gets letters from the high priest to authorize him to go and chase them out and bring them back. Damascus wasn't like PJ, you know, just up the road from KL. Damascus is 240 kilometers from Jerusalem. Just a little bit less than the distance from here to Kwantan. He doesn't have a Karak highway to drive at 110. Right? He's, this guy is zealous. He took the initiative to go and get extradition papers, form a party, walk or very best ride 240 kilometers and back just to chase down the Christians who were from Jerusalem. 
He was so sure that this way was wrong. Certainly it was dangerous. Convinced he had to stop it. That he's, he's willing to travel vast, vast differences to snuff it out. But something happened on that road to change his life. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He was blinded by a light so bright that, he says elsewhere, it was brighter than the midday sun. And he fell to the ground before this light. Either in worship or as someone knocked over by his conqueror. Either way, he heard a voice, distinct voice, a voice that spoke his name in Aramaic, his native tongue. A voice asked him a question, verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now the word persecute could also mean pursue or strive after. So it might have been a positive thing. Why are you striving after me? Or it could be a negative thing. Why do you persecute me? At this stage, we just we can't be sure. Saul's asked a question. He responds with an answer in verse 5. It says, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Now, Lord could just mean Sir, but it was also a designation for God. It was the word that people used when they wanted to refer to Yahweh, Israel's God. Could it be that, that Saul recognized the voice of the God of Israel? Could it be that he realized that Yahweh is speaking to him like, like, like he, he spoke to, to, to the Moses in the burning bush? He says, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am. In the Greek, it's ego eimi. No surprises there, because I am is the name of the God of Israel. The name Yahweh means I am. God had revealed himself to Moses as I am. But the voice doesn't stop there. It says, I am Jesus. Now there's the shock. Saul has been persecuting all the followers of Jesus in the name of I am. He's been rigorously pursuing them in order to stamp out this false teaching, this, this threat to the worship of the true God, Yahweh, I am. And then this light, this voice, this encounter with the divine, and the shocking revelation, I am Jesus. And then the incrimination, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. There's no doubt about it now. The question was, why do you persecute me? And Jesus is, I am. And Saul, by persecuting his followers, had been persecuting him. How would you feel if you were in Saul's shoes at this point? You've been striving in God's name to defend his honor by killing and jailing people. And you find yourself face to face with him and you find that you've been on the wrong side all along. You've been opposing God, persecuting him. And now he's caught up with you. I think I'd be prepared to face his judgment and die. That's probably what Saul was expecting. 
But instead of judgment, Jesus showed him mercy. Instead of punishing him, Jesus chose to use him. Instead of condemning him, he gave him an instruction. Verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you ought to do. And so Saul got up. But when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. He had been blinded by the light. He had to be taken by the hand and guided to his destination by those who were with him. They hadn't seen what Saul had seen. They, they heard the voice, but from what we read elsewhere, the words were probably not distinct for them. Verses 7-9. to nine. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, and they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. A voice had told Saul to wait in Damascus for his instructions, and so there he was. Fasting three days is a sign of humility and repentance. Remember, Jesus had been dead three days before he rose again, and now his new apostle will be humbled for that same time, before he was sent to work. But at this point, the scene shifts to another disciple of Jesus in Damascus, a man named Ananias. We read about him in verses 10 to 12. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him, that he may regain his sight. Now, it was Ananias' turn to be shocked. Lord, you are telling me to go and lay my hands on who? This is, do you know why he's here? I mean, verses 13 and 14, he says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. And asking me to go and see him is like asking George Bush to go and pay a visit to Osama bin Laden in his cave in Pakistan, or, or something like that. You know? It's crazy. Chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He says, this is, this is my, cho- I've chosen this man. Unlikely as it seems, I have chosen him. He belongs to me now. And I will use him, God says, to spread my gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. From being a persecutor, he will be one of the persecuted. Instead of causing suffering to my people, he himself will suffer for my name. And verse 17 tells us that, And then I departed and entered the house. He's obedient to what God had said. Took the risk. Went to see Saul. And laying hands on him, verse 17, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Ananias does what he's told. And notice, 
the very first words that Saul hears after his conversion from Christian lips, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the enemy of the church is now a brother. The persecutor of the church is now family. The one who was breathing murderous threats against the church of God is welcomed as a fellow member of the body of Christ, a child of the same Heavenly Father, a co-inheritor of the kingdom of God. Brother Saul. And he prays for him to regain his sight. He lays hands on him, prays for him that the Holy Spirit would fill him for the ministry that he was about to be set apart to do. And verse 18 and 19, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Saul's sight restored, baptized, officially received into the Christian family, though he'd already become part of it. He ate and drank, felt better for it. Stayed with the disciples in Damascus a few days. And the next Saturday, he started his preaching ministry. Verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. That would have been a bit of a surprise for the people turning up at synagogue on Saturday, wouldn't it? Here's this guy who's come up from Jerusalem to, to, to stamp out the Christian faith, and they call him to come and speak, and he starts talking, and He's saying that Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him, verse 21, were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He went straight into it, into the debate, knew the facts, now he knew that Jesus was the risen Christ. He was willing to argue and debate and prove the truth that Jesus is that king that Israel had been waiting for. And this would mark the beginning of a long and a fruitful ministry. Because this Saul was going to become the Apostle Paul. He was going to be the one who would take the gospel to many, many places where it was not known. He was going to be the one to fight for the truth of the gospel, even when Peter himself seemed to be ready to compromise. He was going to be the one to write many of the books that make up the New Testament, including the book of Romans, which Martin Luther was studying when he was converted. He would indeed stand before kings and Gentiles and sons of Israel. He would follow his Lord unto death, victim of persecution, but a champion of the gospel of Jesus. He will continually and powerfully declare that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. Well, friends, what do we learn from this account of Saul's conversion? Well, the first thing that stands out is the sovereign grace of God. The sovereign grace of God. Grace means unmerited favor. Something we don't deserve. And God's grace is behind salvation. God's grace means that the salvation that he gives is entirely and completely undeserved. It's his kindness, nothing else, that causes him to save someone. 
And His grace is sovereign. He can save who He likes. It's completely up to Him. And the conversion of Saul is a, is a perfect example of that. It's an illustration of that, isn't it? Saul did not decide for Christ. He was persecuting Christ. It was Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. God had every right to judge him. had every right to condemn him. But instead he showed him mercy and chose to use him. That's grace. God being kind to someone who doesn't deserve it. Didn't happen to everyone who persecuted Christians. Didn't happen to Caiaphas. Didn't happen to Herod. But it did happen to Saul. And that's how it always is for those of us who belong to Jesus. If we think we have chosen Christ, well, in a sense that's right, but then later on we discover that actually it was because Christ in his mercy has chosen us. We can't take credit for it any more than Saul can. Those of us who are in Christ are recipients of God's grace, his kindness to us. And it's entirely undeserved. And like Saul, we can only be thankful for God's grace toward us. This is the Saul's words towards the end of his life as he himself reflects on his conversion in 1 Timothy 1. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his servants, service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's sovereign grace is entirely undeserved. The second thing we learn here is that no one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. How bad can you be before God says, you're too bad for me to save you? I bet that no matter what we've done, we haven't gone around persecuting Christians. Gone around trying to, be in the, trying to kill God's church an accomplice in the murder of God's servants. Him gone round trying to stamp out the faith. That haven't tried to bring to nothing everything that Christ died for. Now if Saul could do that, and God's grace could reach him, do you think that God can forgive you for what you've done? Of course he can. If the death of Christ could pay for Saul's sins, do you think it can pay for yours and mine? Of course it can. If we put our trust in Jesus, then we too can be forgiven. Like Luther, like Wesley, like Paul, like millions of others, we can know the freedom of knowing that we are accepted by God. We can be justified, declared not guilty by God the judge, because Jesus took the punishment on our behalf. We can stand before God in the day of judgment, pure and clean, facing no condemnation, even though we know we are sinners, because we have the righteousness of Christ. Because God's grace, His undeserved kindness, can even reach the worst of sinners. 
Listen to what Saul himself says in the next few verses of 1 Timothy 1. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. God can save Saul. God can save us. The third thing we learn here is that Jesus identifies with his people. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah? Okay. When he spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus, he didn't just say, Why do you persecute my people? He said, Why do you persecute? Why do you persecute me? When by faith in Christ we are, when we put our faith in Christ, we are united with Him by faith, spiritually. And united with Christ, we get all the benefits of His death and resurrection. And because we are united with Christ, we are members of His body. And when people persecute us, really, they're persecuting Him. And friends, if you are one of God's children, then whatever people do to you, God takes it personally. God will not fail to take action. He will bring your persecutors to judgment or to repentance and salvation. As like Stephen, you pray for them as, as, as Jesus taught you to. Remember Stephen prayed? said, don't hold this against them. And now Saul is saved. Either way, Jesus cares about what you go through. Jesus identifies with the persecution of his people. Fourthly, we learn from the example of Ananias that God uses ordinary people. And one commentator described Ananias as the forgotten hero of the Christian faith. We never hear about him again except when the story is retold. And yet he had such an important part to play in the conversion of Saul. See, when we look at Saul, we think, he's so different from us. He's an apostle. Received a revelation of the risen Christ. Commissioned by Christ. He's Apostolic, different category, but Ananias is just a disciple of Jesus, like us. An ordinary Christian like, like you and me. But he was faithful to the task that God gave him. He took the risk, and God used him to change the course of history. So brothers and sisters, we mustn't think that we're too small or insignificant to be used by God. He may not use us in the way he used Saul, in fact he won't. He may not speak to us like he spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus or even the way he spoke to Ananias, but, but he has spoken to us in his word and he's told us what he wants us to do and like Ananias, we need to trust him and obey him. We must do what he says, even if it means taking risks. And like Ananias, he can use us, even us, to his praise and glory. And finally, we see from this passage that God continues 
to fulfill his plan. Right through the book of Acts, we see God's plan for the gospel to go out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We saw the persecution in Jerusalem triggers the spread of the gospel to Judea and Samaria. God was in control even when it looked bad for the church. And now that Saul has converted, the stage is set for the gospel to go out to the nations. But before the Gentiles could be grafted into the true Israel, before the Gentiles could be included among the twelve tribes in, in an abnormal way, the apostle to the Gentile would be grafted into the apostolic band, be made part of us together with the twelve apostles in an abnormal way. Converted and called, as he said in another passage, as one untimely born, compared to the other apostles. But his message is the same as theirs. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And brothers and sisters, God has a plan. He has a mission. The gospel is to go out to the ends of the earth before Jesus returns. Because God is gathering men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. People saved by the death of his Son. People who submit to Jesus, the Christ, the King, the Lord, who will stand before him in adoration forever. God's plan is the spread of the gospel. And here we see him carrying out the next step of his plan to make it a reality. What seems good and what seems bad, God is still in control. History is going somewhere. God is accomplishing his purpose. Is God's mission our mission? Is God's plan our plan? Is his goal our goal? If not, we need to lift up our eyes. Look beyond the mundane. See the big picture. Grasp God's program for the world. And then ask how we, in our own little way, can fit into that big picture. Because the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria... Spreading throughout the world, God is in control of that process. He's still in control today. Let's make sure we align our plans with his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for saving the Apostle Paul in spite of his Terrible, terrible actions in the past. We thank you for the grace that you showed him in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us, because we too are undeserving of it. But you have been so kind to choose us and take us and give us faith to believe in Jesus. And we know that your message of salvation has reached even us. And we are grateful for it, Lord. Father, as, as your people, we pray um, that we would be able to take up our place in whatever you have called us to, in this part of this, this big plan that you have to draw people to the Lord Jesus from every language and tribe. Thank you for the part that you gave uh, Paul to play in that. Thank you for the part that you give each one of us. 
may we be faithful. And we pray that you would use us, ordinary people as we are, to your praise and your glory through that plan. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.